0: You may know her as the author of the best-selling book, Multipliers. But Liz Wiseman also wrote one of my favorites, Rookie Smarts. And she's our guest on CFO Bookshelf. Bruce, I want you to look back in the past. And you're a very young dude, so maybe you can't go too far backward. But think of either A... A, anytime you're starting a job for the first time or starting a brand new project where you felt like you didn't know anything, what were those projects or new roles like for you?
1: Well, and that's a that's a great question. Um, for me, I've had some good fortune. I mean, this can this can sound a little a, a little off, but was uh, was doing account the other day, and I'd, I've had about 18 different unique roles over the course of my career, along with about 22 new supervisors. They've been in operations, accounting, financial planning and analysis, marketing, um, retail, uh, credit card banking, manufacturing, education, was, was a edu- edu- professor for a while, did pharmacy benefit management, and now in rec tech. And so this, this is a fairly, that's a fairly familiar feeling and it's energizing. It's exciting because there's, when there's always new things to learn, you, there, there's something to, there's something to strive towards. There's always something, um, there's always something around the corner and it feels like something that's going to grow and it's going to make you a, a stronger professional. And the other thing, um, that i found especially now at at practice link uh, most widely utilized uh physician recruiting resource Agree. is is that because of of being in the cfo role versus being at a fortune you know fortune 20 company you know you're there, there's a wide variety of things to be involved in and somebody i spoke with a few years back you just the the comment was when you go to a you go to a large company it kills your skills because you get in a rut And when you're in that new role, you feel like, you know, probably leading up to it, you felt like you had, there was some element of mastery. I I do want to clarify those different jobs typically were um, on an upward trajectory uh, versus being fired 17 times in my career. And, you know, so there was, there's always that feeling that you had, you know, reach the point where it might be time for somebody else to to take the reins and do something different and might be time for me to take the reins at something different and make a different impact.
0: You teed this up perfectly. So it sounds like Bruce, if I can paraphrase when you step into a new role or a new project, a new initiative, more than likely you are a energized. I think you use that word. And and number two, you're probably going to bring your best work to that new role because it's, well, it's new and you're having to learn that that is correct
1: uh, that's correct and i'll i'll add the um the the third the third leg to that stool is being humble and knowing that you got to find your resources um and and learn the role as um you know as somebody who doesn't know anything and you're going to you're going to know some things when you're put into a role but I, one of the things i have found is that when you reach out to people who you'll be working with in those new roles, they love showing their mastery. And I have found that across the board, I've always had very helpful, um, very helpful, very kind people. When you when you come from a humble place, people are very kind to to help you try to do your best and to do the best for the organization.
0: The reason I'm bringing this up, Bruce, is I had a chance earlier this week, caught up with Liz Wiseman. She is the author of Multipliers, great book. And she also wrote the book a few years after that called Rookie Smarts. And the two books, I mean, they're a fit. And I almost think or feel as though Rookie Smarts was being written as she was working in her first position at Oracle. Um, Now, she probably had no idea I'm going to write a book, but in a way, the material is being written because of those first few years. I think she ended up working there 15, 16 years at Oracle, and she brings that up in the interview. But our topic is the book, Rookie Smarts. And I even told her, this book is so underrated. I mean, I'm at the point where I'm going to be gifting this book to anyone I work with going forward. It's that good. So our interview is with with Liz Wiseman. Wonderful, just a beautiful person, very generous with her time. And I enjoyed uh, her, her insightful answers to some of my questions. Liz, I loved the introduction to your book. It's, it's outstanding. We're talking rookie smarts. Can you walk us back, to those early days with Oracle. What was it like? And, and again, Rookie Smarts, only, even though it came out just five, six years ago, you actually started, that book was in you going back 20 plus years ago. Can you talk about that experience?
2: Well, I, I love that experience. And you know, I have to tell you that I started at Oracle, what is it, 33 three years ago, 32 years ago? And yeah, it was 32 years ago. And I still miss it. I miss those days because like everything was moving so fast and it was just this organization full of intellect and hope and possibilities. And I was just a couple weeks ago thinking about how I miss that feeling of Sunday nights, you know, when I couldn't wait to get back to work. Like I loved my job and I, and, and I think, the reason why I love my job so much is I worked with all these brilliant people. And, you know, I'm always baffled by this notion of imposter syndrome. I don't think I had any imposter syndrome. I, maybe because I never felt like I was a peer to some of these people who were so smart. I just felt lucky. Maybe it was like blessed syndrome, like that feeling when you just like, how did I get so lucky? How did I get so lucky to end here?
0: It was a great place to work. I've heard you say, that the higher the challenge level, the more satisfaction you have. So th- that's really one of the premises of Rookie Smarts. Is that correct?
2: Well, it's, it's part of the data that I gathered in this. We did a big survey. It was about um, 1,000 people in this uh, data pool. And we asked a number of questions about the nature of people's jobs and the orientation to their jobs. And two that we correlated together that were so interesting. We asked, what's the degree of challenge currently in your work? And then in another question, what's the degree of satisfaction with your job? And when we correlated those two together, we get a researcher's dream because it's almost like a, a, a one, you know, point oh correlation. It's just purely up and to the right, meaning as challenge level goes up in our work, so does our job satisfaction. Now, it's not perfectly up and to the right because it tapers off. It's... Um, It flattens out because, you know, there is sort of a terminal level of challenge. You know, (laughs) there's probably diminishing returns at some point would be a good CFO way to to articulate that. But yeah, we do. And we resent our jobs when our jobs become easy. And it's actually why I left Oracle after, you know, 17 years of being on this steep learning curve and just loving my work that I did not know how to do. I left because I suddenly knew how to do it. And it was, I began to resent my job.
0: You've stated also that when you're new at something or we do our best work when we're new at something. So even back at Oracle, it was training, right? You were, you were in charge of putting new training programs together.
2: Yeah, my, my first job at Oracle was to coordinate training programs for the consulting division. And then in a reorganization, I got put into, uh, well, I found a job in a group that was running the new hire bootcamp, which was the program that Jeff Walker had. It was sort of his, um, brainchild. And then that grew into Oracle University and grew into the, talent development function for the company.
0: And Jeff, of course, he was a CFO at the time, is that correct?
2: He was. Uh, he had a double job as the CFO and as the head of the applications division.
0: Before we go much further, so let's delineate between the veteran and the rookie.
2: Well, the veteran is, it's not, let's talk about what the veteran is not. The veteran is not someone who has returned from war. And the veteran is not someone who is old or mature or, um, you know, an age-related characteristic, a veteran in in the vernacular of this book is someone who is experienced, someone who's done something multiple times and they are good at it, Uh, you know, it's something that they've spent time with. The rookie is someone who's doing something for the very first time. Now the rookie is not also not necessarily, well, it's not an athlete in their first, in in the NBA or NFL. Uh, A rookie is not someone who is young. A rookie is someone who is new to something for, and they're doing something for the first time. And I, and for the purpose of the research, I actually narrowed it into, you know, rookie mode is when you're doing something important and hard. And you're doing it for the first time, so I wouldn't I wouldn't go out and say that we are always brilliant in rookie mode. You know, all all you need to do to to uh, believe that is to go through like TSA, the security checkpoint in an airport, and you see that people who are doing this for the first time, you see that they bumble this, that they're they're not doing this brilliantly, because when we're doing something that's unimportant. We, we tend to just, um, we make a lot of mistakes because we're not paying attention. What happens is when we're new to something that is important, meaning people are watching us and it's hard, meaning we have already established in our mind that there's a gap like, wow, I haven't done this before. Wow. People are watching me. This is important. Like this matters. Like it's in that state important, hard, and we're doing it for the first time that we kick into a gear that really accelerates performance. We, we start asking questions. We watch, we pay attention. We're humble. We seek feedback. We respond to feedback. We, we keep things simple. It's like it was, there's this point mark in my research where as I was looking at all of the data of what happens when we're in this rookie mode, And as I was distilling it and seeing kind of a profile of behavior, I'm like, wow, that's what organization after organization company, companies all over the the world are trying to get their employees at all levels to operate this way, to seek feedback, to be agile, to be lean, you know, to be curious. I'm like, this is what the whole corporate world is trying to do. But yet this, this kind of magical way of working it comes natural to us when we're in rookie mode.
0: I have about 20 to 30 quotes that I could say are my favorite quotes in the book, which may be too many. But I think, Liz, I have a paradigm that may have been either altered or busted. Let me start with a quote. And you've, you've shared this a few times. It's, it's in a, a TEDx talks so that you've done that will be in our show notes. You stated, and this is again in the book, If the amount of information in science doubles every nine months and decays at 30% a year, how long does one's knowledge last? So here's my potential paradigm that may be shifted. I'm a big believer, or at least I was up until a couple of weeks ago, of the T-shaped professional. So the I-shaped professional is going to want to be someone who's very, very deep in a couple of areas of, well, subject matter expertise. The T-shaped is where they start learning on the fringes. If you are rookie smart, have this rookie mindset, does that T-shaped professional, does that get altered? Does that go away? Uh, Is my thinking, how's my thinking on that?
2: You know, that's, a, that's such an interesting question because I've never thought of what the shape of that learning looks like. But what I do know is that people, when we're in rookie mode, this way of working comes natural. There are people who stay what I call professional rookies. And what I think is different, what distinguishes these people is how willingly they they go back into rookie mode. These are people who kind of, jump off the top of the S curve and, and they, they go down to the bottom and they're willing to begin anew at things. So when I think about a, a T shaped or an I shaped curve, um, I don't know, I like I always think of that from like being able to move from strategic thinking down mm-hmm. into the details. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of range really imply, uh, you know, comes into play here. But I, I think of just like Being willing to slide down an S is is kind of what I get.
0: And this leads to another question. And by the way, this book is excellent. You've got to get the book. Uh, Just get the book, read it. And if you're like me, read it like three times and I'm still going to be reading it again. In the end of the book, you've got this Q&A section, which is brilliant. There's one question about, is this personality dependent? I would have worded that question a little bit differently because when we go back to the introduction, and by the way, this is one of those books where you don't skip the introduction. Some people go right into chapter one. Don't, that's where your story is, getting started with Oracle. I had an opinion about you, Liz. My opinion was that you were very driven. You were very curious. And you were like, I'm you had a lot of grit, you had a lot of Angela Duckworth grit. So I would have asked the question are those traits, are those innate traits necessary to be a rookie mind, have a rookie mindset?
2: Mark, I think you're right. I think, I think so. And, you know, I didn't, I couldn't put my finger on it when I was writing the book. I knew there was something like there's this other part of this ingredient. I mean, we see this pattern over and over in, in rookie mode, but I do think that it's either accelerated with certain personality types or there might be some of it that just require it. And it is the start. And I'm stumbling at like bumbling over this answer mark because I do think that for me, some of these things come so naturally that it's hard to imagine life without it. And and I do think I was, it was funny that you asked this question because I've been thinking about this. And I think being in the current pandemic environment and seeing how people react to that, like, I think this rookie dynamic just go, it's like on fire when you get people who just really love learning and they, Not like love learning, like, oh, gee, I've got a book nook in my house and I just love to read. People who actually get excited when the world doesn't match their expectations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I am nodding profusely. Absolutely. And something tells me that some of the, and by the way, I now have a new definition for A player. An A player is going to have someone that has this rookie mindset (laughs) um, at all times, Uh, but no, I'm, I'm nodding profusely and and I'm smiling as you share this.
2: I think it's people who, who actually enjoy the process of wrestling down a problem and, you know, enjoy the conquering of that. And I think it is one of those things that you can pivot on. I'm going to give you this little secret list. I'm, I'm working on a new book and I, um, I'm in the writing process. I was going to
0: ask you, is there another book in you?
2: There's a bunch because I really enjoy the puzzle part of a book. And I think I've started, I I think I write books now because I no longer work at Oracle in those early days. And what a book represents for me is a, a big question and then a need. You sign a contract and say, you're going to do this. And then you've got to figure this out. And it kind of gives me that same sort of rush. But as I was um, doing this current book, I I realized, oh, you know what? There are some prized characteristics of people that you want to hire, and this is the part that I think that the rookie smarts underappreciates, underdevelops. This idea of, oh, there's there's a profile in here, and so I just made my my list. Is number one um, people who are service oriented, people who actually see themselves in service to something else, like. They're not purpose or passion oriented. They actually think like, no, I'm here to serve a need. Like I'm going to look for needs and I'm going to fill it. And I really, I get joy in serving uh, people who are, um, can operate without ego, unattached to self, unattached to status quo. Um, people who are relentless. I once, um the president of Oracle once described me as, He's like, Liz, you're you a dog on a bone."
0: I Again, that introduction, without even knowing you, my first thought was, this is a very resilient person."
2: <laughs> well, and then I would put people who, you know are are curious and and agile, like intellectual curiosity, um, this re- this relentlessness, this grit, like if you can find those characteristics. Like now you've got this rookie smarts dynamic, uh, you know, as a wildfire and it can just spread across the organization. That was the brilliance of Oracle in the early days is they hired people who were, and, and I know, you know, Jeff Walker, the former CFO, he was really the architect of this. He, he and Larry and Larry Lynn, who was on the recruiting side, they concocted this plan. It was kind of an evil plan, Mark, because what they did is they looked for this, like trifecta of talent. They looked for people who were really smart, you know, those straight A students, you know, perfect ACT scores uh, kind of folks, really smart, achievement-oriented, like freaky achievement-oriented. I joined, you know, I joined the company. I probably was strong on the achievement-oriented, but I joined it. I'm like surrounded by people who are like Olympic athletes and people who are just super driven. And then the third was nice. So smart driven and nice. And honestly sometimes they compromised on nice.
0: <laughs> something tells something tells me that was not an issue with you either.
2: Well, I probably I probably did I mean I guess I did well on those 3 but probably scored high on nice and uh, achievement oriented and bright enough to, to sort of hang with this group of really, really smart people. You know, that is a group of people who have figured out grit and achievement and persistence. And and the evil part of their plan was, and we all figured out the evil plan about six months into our jobs, where what they did, the industry this is a relational database industry. It's all forming. There's not really a lot of experience on the market. So they give. All of these young, smart people work to do that's never been done. And it really shouldn't be done. It's like they pulled it out of the file drawer called can't be done. And then they didn't tell us that other companies couldn't do it or that they couldn't do it. They're just like, you know, let's give it to the young, smart, dumb people. And, and then all of us realized, wow, in some ways we've been had. Like, nobody told us we couldn't do it. I think there's a book, um, The Phantom Tollbooth. Yeah, it's it's written about this exact dynamic yes. of what's possible when you don't know it's impossible. I owe my whole career to this
0: experience. If you don't mind me validating on this whole concept of grit, resiliency, uh, in the book, you quote, or you state, sometimes not knowing is more valuable than knowing. And then in my annotations, I just state, this is a person who is going to go that extra inch to learn more or get that last piece of nugget to, you know, to finish the project. You also wrote, The best leaders understand that the joy of work is in the striving, not in arriving at the top of the ladder. That is, in my opinion, gold. And that that is to me the heart. Of the rookie.
2: Well, I think you are. And like, the, here's the image I would give to you and everyone is imagine Mark and I are, oh, I don't know. Well, well let's say we're socially distancing and uh, we're six feet apart and we have between us a big rubber band. I have one right here on my desk. They're green, they're kind of big, really stretchy. They're not magic rubber bands, but this rubber band. And let's say, Mark, you're the leader. Um, I am the contributor, and you are pulling, stepping back and pulling that rubber band back and making it as tight as it can possibly be. So this would be symbolic of an act of leadership inviting me to do something hard. Like I'm 25 years old, and they are they say to me, you know what, go build a university. And I'm like, I don't know how to build a university. I barely got out of a university. Like, why don't we give that job to an adult? And And it's that discomfort. And so there's this stretch there. And what a lot of leaders do is when they see people stretched and struggling, they they step back toward them. They rescue them. They give them help. Nobody at Oracle really rescued me. And that was really the brilliance of the system. The leaders just kept that stretch. Now, we hate the stretch. The stretch does not feel good. And, you know, if you imagine this rubber band between it, it's like it's pulling me over. I'm having a hard time balancing. I'm wobbling. Like my fingers are purple. They're going numb because it's uncomfortable and I don't like it. We don't like it. Very few people like it in that stage. That's not the part that we like.
0: I, by the way, Liz, I love, I love that exercise. I think you were, and we'll have this in our show notes. I think you were presenting at a Vern Harnish event. Were you one of those people who walked forward or did you keep the distance?
2: Well, that here's the the, the the beauty in this metaphor is when the leader holds that position and does not relent, doesn't say, oh, gee, poor Liz. She's struggling with this. Let me jump in and tell her how to do it. What it forces me to do is to make a choice. I cannot stay in that position. So I either let go or I move forward. And moving forward, forward represents figuring it out, like rising to the occasion, getting the job done. And that's the part we like. We like the fact that we get comfortable again. So it's actually this state of being uncomfortable. Most of us don't like it, but it drives us, it motivates us to get comfortable once again, and that is the learning process and that's what we love it we love the conquering of the uncomfortable and the the a girl that we get when we do that
0: let's get back to the veteran cuz we've been talking a lot about the rookie i i may be worried or concerned i've taken the quiz now you have a couple of quizzes on on your website and I, and before we wrap up we'll talk about the wiseman group but you have a couple of quizzes one is on rookie smarts and I've taken it twice. I took I took it two weeks ago, and I took it again this weekend. in prepping uh, for this discussion, it shows that I'm right in the middle of the comfort zone. And I thought, oh shoot! I here I read a lot. I I I work on new projects. I get to pick my clients. Uh, when I get bored, I do different types of client work. But I'm right in the middle of the, the comfort zone. But my question is not about me. You talk about in the book about veterans can be blindsided. How do you address the veteran who may not realize that they're being blindsided by their veteran mindset versus a rookie mindset? That may have been two questions. So th- does, does that question make sense?
2: I, I think it does. My experience is that, I mean, we don't need to be in rookie mode all the time. Like there's some magic that happens there, but it's a hard mode. I, I have a whole rule I have a rule of one. And my rule of one is I can only do one hard thing at a time.
0: Okay, makes sense.
2: You know, like I can I can do a hard work thing, but I need home life to be pretty sane. If something's really hard at home, I go into comfort mode at work. Like, you know, I'm just gonna do what I'm good at and, and keep things simple. So I'm not in any way suggesting that people kind of like throw themselves like off the cliff into rookie mode for the sport of it. But it's like, we should always have something that's causing us to be um, new at something. But my experience with people who are in that, who are stuck and trapped by their own experience, most feel it. I've never had a hard time convincing someone that they're stuck. Um, They usually know it and they just need help getting out. A lot of people don't know what to go and do, or, you know, they're trapped by the trappings of success. I see that a lot in executive coaching, which is, you know what, either I don't like my job or I've been doing it so long, it's no longer interesting, but I don't know where I can go and get these same sort of, whether it's accolades or compensation. But I think like when, when we get stuck on a plateau, my observation is a little part of us dies inside and that's when we begin to resent our jobs. That's when we begin to resent like our careers. But when we leave that comfort zone and we go out and do something that's important and hard again, visible. So it's not like, Oh, I'm just going to like learn a new few features on my phone. Like I'm going to raise my hand and say, yes, like maybe I've never done fundraising before. Maybe I've somehow like wiggled through all my kids' schools volunteer jobs and never signed up for that. Like that makes me nervous. It's saying, I'm going to go do that thing. And it becomes exhilarating for people. I hear this all the time. People say, I want to be in rookie mode because it felt so good. And and Mark, maybe one way to help people who might be a little bit stuck is I like to, I call it the teleport yourself exercise, where you're teleporting yourself back in place and time. So if I were stuck and Mark, you were my coach. You might say, Liz, tell me about a time when you were new to something important and hard. Maybe tell me about the Oracle experience or, or tell me about when you first left Oracle and you started coaching executives. And, and if you get me kind of breaking that down and thinking that through, like, well, how was I thinking? What did I assume? Uh, What drove me to do this? What kind of, how did you get feedback? Like when people put their head in that space, you can see like they kind of sit up straight, they square their shoulders, they start laughing, they start lighting up. And that's where I often hear people say, how do I find that again?
0: Hey, before we wrap up, you've been interviewed a lot. So I thought I've got to come up with something unique that will be fun for Liz. So if you're up to it, we can't do all six names, but I picked six people in the world that everyone should know and the question will be, if you were coaching them, and this is just, just real quickly. And again, Liz did not get prepped for this. She may she may never want to uh, chat with us. I'm in rookie mode now. This is great. Okay. I'm, I'm going to give you, again, we can skip a name if you want. But the first name is Oprah Winfrey. If you were chatting with her and she said, I mean, just you're coaching her, what would you coach her in terms of getting that rookie mindset back if she asked for it? Oprah Winfrey.
2: I think I would probably talk to her about what she would do and how she would do it if she couldn't take her name with her. I think about Paul McCartney, who when he left the Beatles and started um, Paul McCartney and Wings, like they went in incognito to universities to go play because they didn't, they wanted to see what they can do when they didn't have Paul McCartney's name behind them. But yeah, like what would Oprah do if she wasn't Oprah? She had all her capabilities, but couldn't use her name or her brand.
0: Who's and the next one is, and I'm going to ask the question a little bit differently. In your opinion, how does Jerry Seinfeld keep from being a veteran? How does he keep that rookie mindset? Jerry Seinfeld. Well,
2: I think, you know, I just read something about Jerry Seinfeld the other day that said that he's leaving comedy, uh, so that's what's throwing me about
0: it. was either, so your, your answer on Oprah, I thought was brilliant because, and I didn't want to be dating myself, but Jay Leno, when he was with the Tonight Show, he used to on the weekends, and I don't know how he did it because, you know, he's family and he has hobbies, but he would go to Las Vegas to do weekend shows just to maintain that rookie status. And that's kind of what you said about Oprah. But I—that's what I would have probably thought about Jerry. And again, I did not know about that him him leaving uh, comedy.
2: Oh, okay. So I, when I think of Jerry Seinfeld, I think what would he do if he was in a a a partnership with one of his children? I think about something. um, I think it was The Edge said uh, on YouTube. He was said one of his kids, like a teenage kid, said, "Dad, you know your band is kind of a little old school." Like you ought to start listening to the radio, and and seeing like what what's really current, and and so he's it's like it was his son teaching him how to reinvent himself, and I think about Jerry being a father, like what would he do if he was a comedy duo with his kids? Great, like that might get him you know out of the Seinfeld. What was that the nineties era?
0: Yes, a couple more, but actually just one more. I it was either a toss up between Steven Spielberg or can we do JK Rowling and this may be maybe she could use someone like you because she's finished up her seven books and i think that last one came out maybe a couple of years ago so i don't know if she's going to ever write again but what would be your advice to her about channeling those rookie smarts again
2: i would wa- here's what i would want to know is i would want to know what what did she wish she could do? Did she always, did she only want to be an author? Like what did she, what were her other thoughts along the way? And could she go back to any of those and start fresh? What would she do? You know, she wrote under a different pen name. What would, what, you know, with all of the the wealth that she has, what could she go do with it? But it's, you know, each of those people are all typecast. And I imagine it creates this incredible blessing for them. They get access to, um, they, they, their voice gets elevated, but like for all famous people, I wonder like, what would you want to do that you can't do because we have put you into a groove? Ellen, Ellen recently said, you know, there's a lot of pressure on me to be nice. And like, sometimes I don't want to be nice, but like we, we branded her as Ellen, the the nice guy, you know, like this is like she brings like joy and happiness but you know she recently went and did a a comedy special on like okay no i kind of want to be grumpy ellen
0: and the reason i bring up this exercise is and i know you can relate uh to the cfo because i looked at your website and i see who you've got a great cfo by the way but in my world where i work with financial leaders Sometimes we've been in financial leadership positions for 15 20 years and sometimes they keep doing the same thing and I think it's just maybe refreshing to maybe hear how do people in the limelight you know keep things fresh and keep learning and keep growing instead of just maybe being monotonous and maybe doing the same thing over and over so that that's kind of the the reasoning behind the uh, the, the exercise. Hey, wh- one final question. I love your website. I, I, the homepage is just, it's bold. Uh, it's brash. I don't have it open right now. I, th- I think it has something. What if you could increase your intelligence, you know, twofold, double it or what? I mean, it's, I love it, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the Wiseman group before we wrap up?
2: Well, the Wiseman group is, um, it's not really a group of wise men. Um, Karina Wilhelms, uh, my research director, her, her boys thought that she worked with a bunch of really wise people. They didn't realize it was just happened to be our last name, but, um, you know, the Wiseman group is, it's all built around the ideas in the books that I've um, put out there in multipliers in rookie smarts. We're working on a new book now, But what we're about is how do you really, how do you harvest all the intelligence inside of your organizations? And Multiplier started that journey. Like, what is it that leaders do that can end up diminishing the capability and intelligence inside of their organization? And what we found is that these diminishing leaders use only 48% is what kind of came out of the first study. And it's a number that's really consistent. These diminishing leaders, they're smart, but they underuse the intelligence around them and, and they're costly to organizations. And so we're teaching how do you lead in a way that you actually get all of the intelligence that you hired and paid for and, and trained? How do you become the multiplier to the intelligence of your team? And Rookie Smarts continued that, that journey, meaning that there's a lot of intelligence and capability that sits at the bottom of your organization, that sometimes your your newest members are your most productive and you need to mine that capability while it's still fresh. And your most expensive talent, your experienced people are actually capable of doing far more if they continually to get these opportunities to stretch. Well, I think one of the most fascinating things that came out of the study for Rookie Smarts, Mark, was that the most effective rookies that get the greatest gains in that rookie space are experienced executives who have been taken out of a role and put into a slightly different role, pivoted. Meaning you've been running marketing, we now want you to run sales. You've been running R&D, we're going to ask you to spend a year in, in marketing because they bring all of that capability and management talent and insight and wisdom. And then they're shocked by being put into a system that they don't have answers. And so they have to start asking questions and it kind of infects an organization very positively. So that's really what we're about is helping to build the kind of leaders who can really use all of the intelligence that's inside their organization and get the return on that investment. And, and maybe the, the most crass way to look at what we do is that, you know, we're, we're out to rid the world of bad bosses.
0: And by the way, I'm, this is not a visual medium, but I'm nodding. <laughs> I'm, I've been nodding for about the last five minutes. And my theory, by the way, is that the guys at Oracle, they were multipliers. They, they were multipliers. That name just had not been described yet. But anyway, the the name of the website is thewisemangroup.com. And by the way, above the fold, I just pulled it up. What if you could double your team's intelligence? I, again, that is, that's, that's gold. I love that that question at the very, very top of the website. Liz, I wish we could keep talking. This has been great. And by the way, I've been taking notes. <laughs> I don't know if the interviewer is supposed to be the one taking, but I will go back and listen to this uh, a couple more times. But thank you for your time. This Again, this is every moment has just been outstanding. Thank you. Well,
2: Mark, thank you for being interested and being curious and being just infectiously positive. I'm sure everyone says that to you, but you are definitely um, a glass half full kind of person.
0: Bruce, one of the questions I I never get to ask all the questions I want to. You, you've seen the interview arc, the inner, the interview arcs that I put together, and usually they're they're nine boxes, nine slots. It's a three by three matrix, and and. I will usually have some questions in in the margins that I want to ask. And one of the questions I did not get around to asking is Liz in several of her speeches, some of her keynotes and we'll have this in the show notes. She recommends that CEOs keep a, keep a, keep a, I don't know list. And I thought that's brilliant. And, and she's even talking about the CEOs and I don't know list. And again, I've not asked you this ahead of time, but have you thought about keeping an I don't know list and don't give me some smart answer that you, you wouldn't have enough paper or uh, enough spreadsheet rows to write down your, I don't knows, but what's, what's your thought on an I don't know list?
1: I guess again, kind of, because I have had so many new roles over the course of my career, um, I don't know if I've had a a single sheet of paper that's an I don't know list, but I, I've I've always kept a planner of some sort um, there, and that's there, there's always that that note section off to the side, and typically I've got a box where if it's if I, if I've got follow ups or something that that I don't um, that I feel like I need to be deeper on. It'll go in there, or I'll even write it as a as a task for the following day to, to, to ensure that I, I know more about that. And it could be something where it's it's just a stay, a thing where you're going to are um, you going to do a um, you know just read something and that's going to be enough. And sometimes it's going to be a whole it, it, it's going to need to be a whole you know personal goal to get smarter at something.
0: Next week, we will be talking to the CEO and founder of Dry Run Software. It's a cash flow modeling software based up in Canada. And cool. we, we had that conversation with him earlier in the week, and we'll be having that conversation next week. And that one is short enough to where I have some very specific questions to ask you, Bruce, uh, how you guys, how you and your team, do cash flow forecasting and modeling. So that's going to be an interesting conversation next week.
1: Great. I can't wait for it.
0: So Bruce, I'm going to let you uh, wrap this up for us.
1: Well, thanks, Mark. Mark, have a great weekend. Everybody out there, stay safe and well with your families. And we'll look forward to being again, being together again next week. Take care.
0: CFOs. VBs of finance, controllers, staff accountants, financial analysts, FP&A professionals, and all other financial leaders. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf.